Father, we bow humbly in your presence this morning, grateful to take our Bibles now and open them and to read and to learn and to understand what your will is for us today. Thank you, Father, for the remarkable nature of the scriptures and how even some of these stories that are now thousands of years old are as relevant and appropriate today as the morning headlines. Father, help us to focus, help us to calm our hearts, help us to have an openness to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that we would have a tenderness, that we would be careful to walk in obedience, even when it's difficult. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercies this morning. And now it's with anticipation that we look to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. He was young and he was tough. He was 27 years old. He was an outdoorsman. And he was in a terrible fix. His name was Aaron Ralston. Still is as far as I know. It was the spring of 2003 and Aaron was hiking by himself in the Mays District of the Canyonlands National Park south of Moab, Utah, a very rugged and rocky area. No novice to this kind of thing. He had been making his way through some very rugged rock areas and was in about a three-foot-wide slot solo hiking in the wilderness when some rocks let loose and a couple of 800 to 1,000 pound boulders fell, pinning and crushing his arm against the rock wall. And there he was. And one day went by, and two days went by, and on the third day, can you imagine what he was thinking? On the third day, it was a Tuesday, he ran out of water. And then the fourth day, and then on the fifth day, Thursday, five days trapped on his feet, stuck with his mangled arm. Aaron Ralston knew he had to do something. And as unthinkable as it is, he tied a tourniquet off on his arm and he took his knife and he cut his arm off below the elbow to free himself, hiked out, encountered another hiker, and was able to live through the ordeal. Aaron Ralston is a survivor. Don't you love survival stories? They're always kind of, wow. This morning I invite you to turn to a great survival story. It's in Genesis chapter 6. We have a number of great survivor stories in our Bible, don't we? Maybe you boys and girls could think for a minute who are here on some stories in the Bible of of some people who were survivors. How about Joseph in a pit out in the middle of the desert? And God rescued him, didn't he? And how about three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And a wicked king who threw him in a fiery furnace. And God rescued him, didn't he? And one of our favorites is Daniel, isn't it? Being thrown in that pit full of hungry lions and God shut their mouths. What a great survivor story. You know, the difference between a guy like Aaron Ralston cutting off his arm and some of these stories we have in our Bible of survivor stories is, and I'm not saying that I don't know Aaron's spiritual condition and I'm not saying the Lord did not preserve his life. 
But God intervened in great ways in these Bible stories, didn't he? And don't we love to see that? We have a survivor story here in the sense that when we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to read the whole chapter here in just a minute, very familiar story now of Noah, the great flood. I want you to recognize what kind of world it is in which Noah lives. And I want you to see him as a survivor. And we're going to ask ourselves this morning, how did he do it? How did Noah survive in that environment? You see, it was a wicked world, all right. But one of the things, as I read the passage, recognize this. Possibly other than a few godly grandparents who were still living, Methuselah and uh, his own father may have died just right before the floodwaters began. But essentially, in that generation, Noah was all alone in a world that is much worse than our world today. And most of us in this room this morning probably would agree that we're not in a world that's getting better and better. And some of you even don't even like to watch the news or you even dread to look at the front page of the newspaper. It's so discouraging. There's not much good happening. But I want you to know something. This is a great world compared to the world in which Noah finds himself. You see, there's lots of God's people around the world. We could get in an airplane and then get in a small plane and then get in a boat and end up in Emonic, Alaska, and this morning in a little plywood building at the Assembly of God Church in Emonic, Alaska, some 80-year-old toothless Eskimo woman is up front singing praise to Jesus. And they're gathering together, and I've been there, I've been with them, and God's people are out on the Yukon Delta this morning praising him. And you can get in an airplane, and then you can get in a four-wheel drive Toyota, and you can go to the farthest, most remote, dusty, dirty, poorest village in Malawi. And about six hours ago, your brothers and sisters in Christ gathered. They probably had nothing to eat today or very little to eat today. They shook a tin can with some dried kernels of corn in it, and they beat a goatskin drum, and they were singing praise to Jesus. And no matter where you go around the world, God has his people everywhere. But when we read Genesis chapter 6, what is so striking about it is the reality of the fact that essentially, for all practical purposes, Noah was all alone. He didn't have a youth group. He didn't have a Bible study that he attended. He didn't have a church group of guys to go cut wood at New Life Bible Camp. It was Noah and his boys, and that's it. Can you imagine that? You talk about lonely. Aaron Ralston can probably tell you something about loneliness on day three, four, and five, and even before that. All alone, trapped for five days in the wilderness. But what must it have been to crawl up on that scaffolding, putting that ark together for over a hundred years, and to just be all alone? But he survived. Don't you love that? We're here today as testimony of the fact that he survived. Isn't that something? Let's read the text and let's uh, get a handle on what God is doing here. And uh, you'll find it, I think, very challenging and I hope very helpful. Genesis chapter 6, now beginning with verse 1. And when men began to increase in number on the earth... 
and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And when the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, his days will be a hundred and twenty years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and what every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth. Let me read that phrase again. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them." And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. What a great story. As I referenced last week, we know it well. We even decorate our babies' rooms according to, these, to the decor of, the, of Noah and his ark and the flood theme. There's a lot of interesting questions that come up, and we're not going to deal with the flood today or Noah's ark today. We are going to talk about that in some detail because it's quite fascinating Because a lot of questions tend to come to our mind. And this again, in early in Genesis, is a point where the skeptics will point at the Bible and say, you believe that? And I say, absolutely. And don't you think for a second it couldn't have happened exactly the way it happened, because indeed it did. God wouldn't have put it down that way if it didn't. But we'll talk more about how could all the animals fit on the ark and how could Noah have built it and, and was it a universal flood or wasn't it just a big bad local flood in the, in the valley there or something? Were there really that many people on the earth? But I think that it's, there's something that sh- jumps out of this passage and it's a contrast, isn't it? 
Well, you see, we've started in Genesis chapter 1, as many of you know. You've been here. Creation, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the theme of that and the repetitious phrase as God observed it was what? And it was, say it, good. And it was a good earth, wasn't it? And then we have, so we have creation. And then we have the fall, right? Eve and Adam sinned. And after the fall, we have the consequences of sin kicking into high gear. And by in chapter 3, we have the pronouncement of the judgment and the curse, the lostness of all humankind through Adam, and that in Adam all die. We have the story of the Bible laid down for us right there because the rest of the Bible is all about the second Adam coming to rescue us, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have chapter 4, and we have the consequences of those sins magnified in front of our eyes as one brother kills his other brother. Imagine that. Getting a phone call, and you've got two sons. Mrs. Jones, I just want to tell you that your son Tommy just killed his son, his brother Johnny. Imagine what Eve felt. Imagine what Eve and Adam thought about knowing the blessing of God was right here and that just a few years later, their boys are killing each other. In chapter 5, we have the genealogy of Seth, the promised line through Noah. And here we are in chapter 6, almost abruptly. We recognize through chapter 5 with the longevity of the human race, people living hundreds of years, having dozens of children, having sons and daughters, and their sons and daughters marrying and having sons and daughters. We've got exponential growth going on. And mathematically speaking, over the course of about 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 years, it's easy to calculate that there may have been 7 billion people on the face of the earth at the time of the flood. And that's not a ridiculous thought at all. The Bible tells us clearly that the earth was filled and mankind had spread out all around the earth. And in that earth, all around the globe, it's what? It's characterized as wicked. How did he do it? We have this contrast then in chapter 6. You're reading, and the whole earth is wicked. And you have a, a godless, totally base world and culture. And then there's one man who stands out like this blinking neon light who is a righteous man. And I thought it would be beneficial to us to just give one message in the next few minutes here of just asking ourselves, how could he have done this? Because if Noah could have done it then, surely there's some lessons that we, with the strength of the church, and the struggling church that we are to walk in righteousness and to maintain a pure church in a, in a wicked world, we need to be encouraged today, don't we, to walk in righteousness. I'd like to break it down into two parts as we look at this. The first, the first part, staying with our theme of survival, you might think of it this way. It is the very essence or the essentials There's two essentials that we see in the passage as to how Noah could be who he was, a righteous man in a wicked world. And I want you to think of these two essentials as the very basics, the basis for survival. Now, let's say you were trapped, and let's say you were uh, trapped in a a room somewhere or a a cave-in in a cave. There's two essential things that you're going to think of first, right? You have to have, number one, To survive, first and foremost, you have to have what? Your iPod? You got to make sure your socks and your slacks and your blouse match? No. 
No, when you're in a cave-in, you're in the bottom of a hole, and you've got to survive, number one thing I have to have is air, right? I've got to breathe. The second thing you're going to need if you're going to be there for a while and you're going to make it is you've got to have what? Water. Those two things, and if you're not injured too badly, it is remarkable how long a human being can survive or an animal can survive with air and water. But would you agree with me that without those two things, you don't make it, right? Either of those two things. Take away the air, you're going to go really quickly. Take away the water, you're going to go pretty quickly, okay? And so the first part is I want you to see the two main dynamics, the two essentials of his survival. And what they would be, and we'll, we'll get into them in just a second here, but what that would be is he survived, number one essential, by grace, and number two essential, by faith. And I want you to see this morning that those two essentials are what have to be essential to us for our survival in this world today. And then breaking it into the next part, so the essentials of survival, he survived by grace and he survived by faith. The second part of our message, three a little bit more practical lessons from his survival. Let's just kind of step back from the passage and let's point out three things that we can learn as to how he survived so that we can do a little better in our journey of survival in this wicked world. We'll share those in a minute. Okay, let's go back to the text in Genesis chapter 6 now. With our eyes focused and our minds open to the Spirit of God, let's look at Noah and how could he have done this. All alone, here he is in this wicked world. And you can't overstate verse 5, can you, as we said last week. Verse 5, chapter 6, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And it was evidently true of all people except one, because when we get to verse 8, look what it says. But Noah found, what's the next word? Favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Essential to survival for Noah, number one, was how did he do it? How did he survive in this wicked world? I'll tell you how he did it. He did it by the grace of God. You see, it wasn't like God looked over the whole world and decided to pick out the person who was the least wicked of all the wicked people. And this guy is less wicked than everybody else. He lines up all the world full of wicked people and Noah happened to be the front of the line that he had stolen and lied and cursed the least of all the people and so he deserved to get to live. No, because you know what? Noah was a sinner too. And Noah was worthy of God's wrath also, just like the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And just like the only way Noah could survive, as it says, when God looked down, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know what grace is? Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. Some of us don't really deserve to be here this morning. Some of us, probably truth be known, deserve to be dead by now. Some of us deserve to be locked up somewhere by now. Some of us probably deserve to have some bad disease by now, but by God's grace, we're sitting here pretty this morning, enjoying a beautiful Sunday morning with God's people. And if you don't think this is a great thing to enjoy, get yourself a brain tumor and be up on the third floor of Winchester Medical Center on Sunday morning, and where would you rather be? You'll find out how much it means to you to just have a normal old day to get up and go to church. If you don't have a hose down your nose, 
you're in good shape. It's God's grace. Now turn with me to the New Testament, would you? Because I want you to see something here. Because grace is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that. But I want you to turn to that uh, Pauline epistle, his letter to the young pastor Titus. In Titus chapter 2 is where I want you to turn. How did Noah survive in that world? By grace. What was that? It was a gift of God. You see, somewhere along the line, Noah heard the truth. His grandpa Methuselah or somebody sat around a fire and told him about Adam and Eve and told him how God used to walk in the cool of the evening in the garden and he explained who their creator was and old Noah was just a little boy at the time and he took it in and he took it in and, and the lights came on and he realized, I didn't make myself. I'm not in charge of my world. There is a God who loves us. There's a God who's showing grace to us. And even in all this wickedness, there is a God of expectation. There's a God who has a standard. There is a God who has a standard of righteousness. And we need to follow him. We don't need to follow our own human intuition, our own sinful ways. And Noah believed God. His faith enters in there too, but it says, by grace, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let's read Titus chapter 2 because grace is a funny thing. And this walking in the truth is kind of an odd thing because you can't do it if God doesn't give you grace. And you also can't do it if you don't humble yourself in obedience and put one step in front of the other and walk by grace. Somehow the sovereign working of God and the will of man come together to be a team I can't really explain it, but let me show you that it's bo- they're both here in this passage. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now let's just stop there and apply that to Noah. You see, God didn't judge the world overnight. He gave him at least 100 plus years, about 120 years, and he said, Noah, preach righteousness to these people. Righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. That's what Noah preached. There is a God of righteous standards. You are a people who need self-control, and you need to straighten up because there's a coming judgment. And that was Noah's three-point sermon over and over and over, just like it was the Apostle Paul's three-point sermon when he had a minute to King Agrippa, who was living in sin on his throne. And Paul gets dragged up out of jail in the book of Acts, and he looks at him and he preaches righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment to him. That'll preach. And God showed grace. God didn't just whack the world all at one time. 120 years. But by all accounts, it would appear that there were no converts. At least there were none who were still alive at the time of the flood. Or they would have been on the ark. So maybe some people believed and then they died before the rains burst out. But Noah evidently did not have much success preaching the grace of God to these people. And this grace has appeared to all people, it says. The grace of God that brings salvation. God is calling people to himself. God is pulling at your heart today. God wants you to understand that he loves you and that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you. And that's his grace crying out to you. And some of you know what it is to reject that message and to walk away time and time again. Some people did it for 120 years and then it was too late and the door was closed. But let's read on. Notice what this grace does. Verse 12. 
Let me read 11 again. It's short. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. There's the grace of God in a practical way. The grace of God is how Noah received favor from God. That was his favor, this grace of God. He entered into it. He believed God. He trusted God. But it's the same grace that taught Noah to say no. He said, no, uh, I don't do that. Have you ever noticed that righteous living means you have to say no to things. And some people out there, they're saying, see, that's why I don't like this church. And that's why I don't like the Bible. And that's why I don't like God. And that's why I don't like Christianity. Because you're always talking about all the stuff you can't do. And that's why I love grace. Because with grace, you can just live your life. Not true. There you go again. No, no, no. You see, you cannot... live a righteous life in a wicked world if you don't say no to certain things. And Jonah, Jonah, I knew I was going to do that. It's the first time today. Noah, by the grace of God, said no to the wicked world around him. Psalm 1, you remember that chapter? Blessed is the man who does, what's the next word? Not walk in the way of sinners or stand, uh, walk in the way of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. He does not do these things. So listen, Christianity is not negative, but you cannot not live for Jesus without saying no to things, okay? I don't know if I said that right or not. We'll figure it out later when we listen to the tape. You understand what I'm saying? And that's the grace of God. You know what I think... Mr. Noah's favorite song was when he's climbing up on his scaffold in the morning. He's whistling. You know what he's whistling? Oh, wretch like me. And he looks down and he sees his neighbor recovering from a hangover from drunken revelry and pagan sinfulness. And you know what he's saying? I'm so glad that I'm a lot better than my neighbors so that I get to be on the boat. No, he's not saying that. And the church doesn't say that even though we get accused of being pious and self-righteous. All the believers in Christ that I know who are walking in the truth are broken, humble people and they look over at their neighbors and they say, but for the grace of God, there goes me. And Noah was reveling in the grace of God. He knew he didn't deserve to be on that boat either. But God in his grace allowed him to stand in the truth, allowed him to say no to unrighteousness. Now that we're here... Turn a few more pages to the right. Let's go to Hebrews 11 quickly. And let's see what Hebrews chapter 11 says about the second essential for survival. You want to survive in this world? I have bad news for you. You can't do it on your own. You're only going to survive in this world by the grace of God. Because our flesh is so strong. The old ways die so hard. But by God's grace, you can do it one day at a time. Can't you, Cricket? One day at a time, by his grace. Not by my own strength, but by his grace. Second thing that's essential, and Noah didn't have a 
a prayer of being on the boat when the rain started, except for this essential. Notice 11.7. And it's related to the grace of God. But in God's grace, Noah received the truth, and he did this. He believed it, even though he couldn't prove it. By faith, verse 7, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Kind of gives its own definition. By faith, Noah, when warned. What was that? That was the word of God coming to him. Noah, the world is wicked. I'm going to wipe it out. I want you to build a boat. When warned, by faith, he believed it and he acted upon it in holy fear. Things not yet seen. It's not easy to live by faith, is it? We love to prove everything, don't we? We want the evidences in the here and now. Look at verse 1 of Hebrews 11. What is faith? Now faith is being sure of what we hope for. That hope is, is the longing of the believer. It's the earnest expectation of the believer. The reality of things not yet seen. It is being certain of what we do not see. And look how important it is. Look at verse 6 of chapter 11. Look how essential faith is. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Why are you living for Jesus? Look at your neighbor. His boat's bigger than your boat. He doesn't put money in the offering plate on Sunday. He gets to catch bigger fish than you because he goes fishing on Sunday morning. And oh, we can envy the wicked, can't we? What's going to keep you going? It is that in holy fear, by faith, I know that God has spoken, it is true, it is real, and I'm not going to deter from that. So these are theological themes, these are theological realities of our salvation, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's the believer in Christ. How are you going to survive in this world? It starts with your theology. You're going to survive by the grace of God. And the same grace that saves your soul is the same grace that will give you the strength to look at the wickedness around you and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Titus 2, 11 through 15. And you're going to get up tomorrow morning and you're going to walk by faith. And I'll tell you something, it's not a bad motivation to have a holy fear of the coming wrath of God to keep you on the straight and narrow. People say, well, that's not a very good, I want to be motivated by the love of God. Well, I'm highly motivated by the love of God, but I'm not sure I'm not even more highly motivated by the wrath of God. I used to have two friends, lived across the church parking lot in a field. My dad was the pastor of a little Bible church in northern Illinois. Rudy Balderaz lived over through the empty lot, and across the street from Rudy was Eddie Hazier. And when I hang around Rudy Balderaz and Eddie Hazier, I can get in a heap big trouble in a hurry. They did all kinds of things. They stole bicycles, take them out behind Rudy Baldraz's garage, light a fire back there and burn the paint off them, sand them down, cut the forks off of one, extend the forks, make a big chopper out of these bikes that they stole, switch the seats around so nobody could tell, spray paint them up after they burnt the paint off. I learned all kinds of things about crime. They built demolition bikes. 
They'd build demolition bikes with stolen bikes, put these bikes together, and then we'd go under the streetlight at night on the sidewalk on California Street. And Eddie Hazer would get down on one end and Rudy Baldrez down on the other end, and they'd ride at each other as fast as they could. You kids don't listen to me. And then they'd jump off the bikes. They'd literally jump off the bikes just to let the bikes smash together. And then the next day they'd build more bikes because they ruined the bikes. I love that stuff. I love being with Rudy and Eddie. My dad was the pastor of the Bible church. Those boys knew all about having fun. Those boys knew about stuff I had no idea existed in this world. And sometimes I had great opportunity to enter in. And do you know what I would think about? I'd think about my dad and his belt. And I'd think about the fact that if my daddy finds out about this, let me tell you something, it's curtains for me. It is over. You say, well, that was a mean dad. I'll tell you something. Don't you say anything bad about my dad because nobody loved me more than my dad. My dad loved me so much and he taught me so much. And when my dad saw me getting into trouble, buddy, it was over. And I don't know how many times I did not do things with Eddie and Rudy because of my dad. He didn't even know where I was. He didn't even know what we were doing. I just knew I figured he'd find out. Right? And in holy fear, by faith, Noah built the ark. Because why? Because when the rain started to fall, he didn't want to be on the ground. He wanted to be in the boat. You say, well, he had 120 years. You don't know when God's wrath is going to fall, do you? So there it is. There's the essentials of his survival. There's the theological underpinnings of his survival. There's the reality of really the very salvation of Noah in the Old Testament. That by God's grace, he was on the boat. The working of God's favor in his life. Teaching him, too, to say no to ungodliness and live holy and righteously in that present age. And by faith, he built the ark. He made his boys obey him. They worked hard for 120 years. He kept preaching. He kept preaching righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment to people who hold their hands over his ears when he was preaching. Pretty intimidating. But he kept doing it because by faith he believed it to be true. Back to Genesis 6 now, and let's wrap up with a, a few practical thoughts. It'll just take a couple minutes. How did Noah do it? How did Noah how did Noah do it? How do we live a righteous life in a wicked world? By grace, by faith. But when I read this passage, I come away with some practical thoughts too. Surely he had to overcome temptation. Surely he had to overcome discouragement. Surely there were days when Noah felt like quitting. Surely there were days when Noah was filled with doubt on the inside. How do you get through that stuff? First of all, we have a clue in here in verse 9, don't we? Genesis chapter 9. Three lessons for spiritual survival. Three lessons for spiritual survival. Lesson number one, he focused on his walk with God. He focused on his walk with God, not the world around him. He focused on his walk with God. Look what it says, verse 9. Verse 8, But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Do you remember who else it said that of? Reminds us of God coming and walking with Adam in the garden, doesn't it? It reminds us of Enoch, who was translated out of this world because he walked with God. 
And then Noah walked with God. How'd you like to have that chiseled on your headstone when you die? That's not too shabby, is it? Wayne Ferguson. He walked with God. It's the, it's the Hebrew word. I mentioned it when we were talking about Enoch. It's the idea of two friends who are in agreement, walking in the same direction, coming together in a coordinated effort. He walked with God. Listen, when you walk with God, you don't need the approval of the world around you. When you walk with God, you don't need the world to think you're cool or something so that you have self-esteem. Your self-esteem, your sufficiency, your strength comes out of this relationship with God. That's why when I talk to people who are discouraged and their Christianity isn't working, you can almost always mark it down. Not always, because Satan is powerful and we can get in all kinds of tough situations, but you will never know the joy of your salvation if you're not regularly in the Word of God, if you're not a person of prayer, if you're not meeting with God's people. That's why we have ladies' Bible study Tuesday morning. They took a break right now through the holiday season, but coming back in January. Wednesday night, those ladies have a precious time in there, being encouraged. Prayer meeting and Bible study, it's a wonderful time to be strengthened, to pray together, to look into God's Word together. Woodcutting tomorrow at New Life Bible Camp, that will be a strengthening time. Why? Because I'm with all my pagan buddies? No, because I'm with my brothers in Christ. I love being with those guys. Yesterday morning, a group of guys, cars are parked out here, and there's 15 guys sitting at tables down in 106 on Saturday morning at 7 o'clock, drinking coffee and looking in the Word together, sharing their hearts, encouraging one another. Why? Because, Because we need each other? Yes, we do. But more than that, we need to walk with God. And I walk with God and I'm strengthened by the word of God, by the people of God, so that I can do the will of God in my life. That's it. You can't isolate yourself. You can't go for days and not be around God's people and then think you're going to be strong in this world. It's got to be a priority. That's why we're here on Sunday morning, partly. That's why I'm in a home group. That's why I've got a study Bible that I'm reading and trying to learn and grow. I'm walking with God because, and it kind of reminds me of, I mentioned them earlier, you boys and girls especially, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And do you remember when the, when the king called him up and he made that big tower there? And uh, who, who was that? Was that Nebuchadnezzar? Or it wasn't Darius, it was Nebuchadnezzar. And he calls these three guys in. Remember the musical instruments play and everybody had to bow down? And there's three guys standing there. People, acres and acres of people with their hiney up in the air and their head down to the ground. And three guys standing there. Why? Because when the king calls them up, what did they say to him? Remember what they said? Oh, king, hey, live forever if you want to, buddy. And we appreciate you, but we don't really care what you said to us. We care about what God said to us. And if... And if you kill us and God allows to let us die, so be it. Because we don't worry about what you think about us. There's only one person who I worry about what he thinks of me. It's God. He's the one I walk with. He's the one I plug into for my point of reference. He's the one that keeps me going on true north. He's my bearing. That's Noah, isn't it? That's Noah in this age, walking with God. They throw tomatoes at me. They laugh at me. They curse me. They steal my tools. They try to light a fire under the front end of the ark and burn it down. They give me all kinds of grief. They've been doing it for a hundred years. 
so be it. I walk with God. I walk with God. Isn't that the kind of person you want to be? You say, well, that's not very helpful. That's as helpful as I know how to be. If you're not doing that, you aren't going to make it. He focused on his walk with God. Lesson number two, I've already kind of referenced this. He feared coming judgment. He feared coming judgment. That's what it said in chapter 11 of Hebrews. In holy fear, he built the ark. Look at chapter 6 where we are now. He heard clearly, verse 13. So God said to Noah, Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people and I'm going to destroy them off the face of the earth. And from that day on, Noah's life was not the same because he lived under impending judgment. We will talk about this more when we have a message about God closing the door on the ark. I think that had to be the most horrible moment in the world. And there's a parable in the New Testament where Jesus taught the same thing about the door coming closed and it's over. And Noah worried about the door closing from that day on. Interesting, isn't it, how comfortable we can be knowing that the Lord will return one day in all judgment and righteousness? Isn't it interesting knowing we're going to stand before him one day as his children? And John said in 1 John chapter end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, it's the hope of the believer. And he who has this hope in him does what? He purifies himself. The, the idea of Christ's return is a purifying doctrine. And it did for Noah too. He feared coming judgment. He wanted to be found faithful doing what God had called him to do. And it kept him going. Number three and finally. Practically speaking, three lessons for spiritual survival. Number one, he focused on his walk with God. Number two, he feared coming judgment. And number three, he refused to make excuses. And this gets down to it sometimes, doesn't it? Now let's just review what was going on in Noah's world. Number one, he did not have Christian radio. He was asked by God to do something incredibly difficult. He had to have had unanswered questions. He saw essentially no fruit from 120 years of righteous living and ministry. And nothing like this had ever happened before. He couldn't get on a plane and go to a conference at a church in California and figure out how to model themselves after that one. He was just flapping in the breeze all by himself. And so I think one of the things about Noah that I want to learn is that I see in him that he did not make excuses. You say, where's that in the text? He made it on the boat. And after 120 years, how many times do you think his son said to him, Dad, they're laughing at us. Dad, none of my friends at school like me. Dad, everybody else is doing it. Dad, I'm too tired of this project. Dad, this is so boring building these saw and this lumber. Son, a rain is going to come. Son, keep sawing. Son, keep whittling them pegs. Boy, keep stirring up that pitch. The clouds are darkening. Dad, I don't like this. It's no fun. Son, Stop making excuses and just obey. Right? Right? 
Listen, if you're going to live righteously in a wicked world, you've got to quit letting yourself make excuses for all your little trip-ups. And you've got to tell yourself the truth because it's the truth that sets you free. All right? Let's review. The theological underpinnings of righteous living by grace through faith. Practically speaking, focus on your walk with God. Get your eyes off the world. Stop watching TV. That'll help. Number two, fear coming judgment. You want me to walk around and live with a fear of coming judgment? I absolutely want you to do that. I'm going to end up needing counseling. No, you won't. It'll set you free. It set me free. I don't have time, for example, to worry about my lawn because of coming judgment. I don't wash my car because of coming judgment. Honey, I just don't have time for that. The Lord's coming back. Oh, it'll set you free. Honey, the Lord's coming back. I got to go hunting now, today. Now, listen. Don't worry about the psychological, emotional negativity of worrying about coming judgment. Let it change your life. Let it stir your heart. Let it set you on fire. And finally, knock off the stupid excuses about why you can't live for Jesus every day. He didn't call you to something you can't do. He didn't call you to do something you can't do. And with the Holy Spirit inside you, you can say no to yourself. Sometimes when I'm working with young men especially, maybe there's an issue with their eyes or maybe an issue with language, and I'll say to them, they say to me, Pastor Van, I just can't stop. I'll say, you know what you got to do? You got to ratchet up your want to. I say, what if I followed you around with about a four-foot piece of two-by-four, and every time that word came out of your mouth, I just, bam! You think you can stop saying that word? Yeah, man. See, you got to ratchet up the want to. You just don't want to bad enough. And about the time you're getting plowed upside the head with a two-by-four every hour or so, it only happens a few times, and you lose your want to for that stuff. We're just too easy on ourselves, aren't we? You know, be a part of the loving body of Christ here. Strengthen your walk. We can live righteously in this world, right? Let's bow in prayer. Father, you've been so faithful to us through the years. And in many ways, we've had a real easy, comfortable journey in our Christian lives. So forgive us for our complacency and forgive us for our worldliness. Forgive us for the lame excuses we use for not growing in grace and growing in Christ and being stronger in our faith and being bogged down by the world around us. Even though we know judgment is coming. Father, may we be like Noah. May we walk in the truth. May we care about the truth and may we live in holy fear. And may you look down and smile, pouring out your grace upon us. May we be worthy of walking by faith like these guys. Friend, before I close from praying, do you know Christ today? Are you right with God? Have you accepted the forgiveness of God through Christ? His shed blood washes every sin away. You have room for Jesus today? Some of you have had room for everything else in your life. You're saying, well, I might as well try Jesus. You can look at it that way if you want. 
whatever your motive, you need to enter into this living by faith and taking the free gift of God's salvation, having your sin forgiven and knowing that Christ carried your sin to the cross. He didn't stay there. He was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the scripture, that we can have life. Have you accepted his free gift of salvation? Admitting you're a sinner, believing that Jesus is the Christ, accepting this free gift by faith. I hope so. And then some of us need to reorder our priorities, don't we? We're fiddling and fooling around when the rainstorm's going to come up one of these days. Have a sensitive heart. I would encourage you, have a sensitive heart for the priorities of your life. Some of us need to walk with God in a way we haven't been. Some of us need to have a renewed fear of God, don't we? Some of us need to stop kidding ourselves and stop making these excuses. Make room for Jesus in your heart today in a new way. Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds. Accomplish your will in us, I pray. In Jesus' name.